Oh, uh, just to let you know, my my last name is pronounced Primus. Um, Primus. Okay. Yeah, most people get that wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I ended up no, put, I... putting in my Twitter bio rhymes with famous. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome to another episode of Dungeons and Degrees. My name's Adrian. And I'm Alex. And today we have a special guest. Special guest, introduce yourself. Hey, I am Chris Pramus. I'm the president of Green Green Publishing. Uh, you may know me as the designer of such games as Fantasy Age, Dragon Age, and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition. Amazing. Um, I met chris at a i forget the official title but it was like a meetup of like creators trying to like look for people to kind of fill the, their need at their um, workspace and it was really great um, and informative for me who's kind of like on the outside looking in trying to like do i want to do this i mean like people are like yeah just just start writing stop questioning yourself like that was kind of like what i was hearing throughout that but i want to know how did you start writing modules, ideas for games? How did that all start? Well, you know, like any gamer, it was something that I started doing personally when I was 12 or something like that. And uh, like the depths of my ambition at that point was like, maybe I could write an article for Dragon Magazine. Like, that'd be cool. <laughs> um, so then I got into college um, and I started looking around uh, for ways I could break in as a freelance uh, writer and designer. So like I was talking to White Wolf when they were a magazine. They used to have line reviewers for different games. And they were like, oh, we're looking for a line reviewer for the Pendragon game from Chaosium. And I was like, yeah, I love that game. <laughs> so sign me up. But uh, they had already filled that slot. But you know, it was that kind of stuff that I was hustling for. And then uh, my actual break came when my friend Aaron, he knew a developer at Mayfair Games, a guy named Doug Tab. He was developing a game called uh, Ray Winninger's Underground. Ray's name you may know because now he is uh, in charge of D&D, basically. So uh, he's long time industry vet but anyway underground was this uh, cool game great style and they had had some freelancers like screw up and not get their assignments in so there was an opportunity for aaron and i to fill in for those people and aaron grabbed me because he knew that i knew the system in addition to being his good friend so that was 1993 and uh and so we wrote material that ended up being in two books uh, the Underground Companion and the Underground Player's Guide. Um, and then with, you know, just something on my resume and a lot of hustling at Gen Con, you know, like there was internet, but it's not like it is now. So the best place to get work was just to go to Gen Con and talk to people because all the developers and stuff were there. So yeah, then I started branching out and I freelanced for a bunch of different games over the Edge, uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, back when Hogshead Publishing had it, uh, Star Trek Next Generation game from Last Unicorn, and then, uh, oh, Feng Shui. That was another big one. Yeah, so I did that for a couple of years and then decided, well, I've got two years' experience under my belt. Obviously, I should start my own company. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that was the precursor to Green Redeem Publishing, uh, that was a company just called Ronin Publishing. 
And uh, I teamed up with a childhood friend of mine and my brother, and we didn't really know how to be a publisher and we had like no funding <laughs> and my brother's interest was only passing as it turned out. So it was a learning experience that proved valuable to Green Ronin later, but at the time it was difficult. But then in the middle of that, I got a job at Wizards of the Coast. So uh, that was a kind of a left turn. And then I, I had moved to Seattle just a few months before this and they had a job opening. Uh, which I got, and I went to start working on D&D and a uh, little bit of Alternity, and then later uh, I helped launch the Miniatures division over there. Just Look a few that. things. So many hats. Like, just... <laughs> I mean, like... A couple things. Yeah, you're so early in your career. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, next year is going to be uh, the, what, 30th anniversary i guess of my getting my first professional work so nice yeah what's going through your head alex it looks like you have a lot of thoughts <laughs> I'm going i'm just listen once again do i come to this podcast woefully at this point unprepared for our guests sometimes i'm like <laughs> listen, oh it's i mean just that's like, why i'm here <laughs> just adrian's friends sometimes we talk to people who have led basically industry standards at this point and i'm just <laughs> i am a baby trying to figure out if i should just leave the conversation now <laughs> it's it's always good to have you know newer perspectives like i think roughly when when did you i mean alex got into it to D when we started this podcast right <laughs> two years two years mm -hmm. yeah and and i've been way before then for me myself so, I mean, listen, I have questions. I also have questions from our Discord as well. So, okay. uh, there's no worries. I've got it. <laughs> I wrote down Warhammer. I, I, say that. I was like, this is you wrote down I wrote down Warhammer, right? Because I take notes. So, I, I'm mm -hmm. engaged the whole time. I was like, hold on, like, like Warhammer, Warhammer? And then, of course, my next step is to, like, Google. Yeah, uh, Christopher, you have a Wikipedia page. I don't think I've ever talked to a person that has uh, two Wikipedia pages because you've got like the regular Wikipedia and then you've got Critical Role Wikipedia. And so I'm just a little. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could make some edits to that goddamn page. You know, <laughs> like, for example, to put a picture on me of me on there where I don't look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> Uh, but it's, it's really it's, hard it's to from actually... 2007 I saw that picture yeah. I'm like it's a little <laughs> yeah. like across the con floor yeah <laughs> it's like a Sasquatch uh, but... picture of you sorry yeah it's just so random like what they choose to talk about you know they're like oh we're going to list every one of these six dragon articles you did but not like the 50 other things that are on your resume and it's like okay <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, you know, everyone's a baby, you know, at one point in the industry. So Oh yeah. You gotta start you somewhere. Know? Yeah. Don't don't be discouraged. What would be one piece of advice for someone that is starting in the industry? Well, you know, it has changed a lot since I was in that position. So, mm. you know, what I used to tell people was to go try to get some magazine work, like especially, you know, there was like Dragon and Dungeon magazines, you know, in print at the time. And those were good places to uh, not only get stuff published, but even just to get feedback from the 
TSR developers and things like that. But like everything's different now. I mean, at that event that we were both at, you know, what I was looking for was mostly like new freelance writers and designers, but everybody who I talked to that, you know, if they did that, that was like one of four things that they did. <laughs> they were like, oh, I'm also a podcaster. You know, I, I also have a blog and I also publish through drive through and, you know, all, all these different things. And, you know, I could just focus on like the one thing that I wanted to do, but in the way the boomers have screwed the millennials <laughs> generally, <laughs> it seems like it takes uh, more different hustles, uh, I guess, to, to get into it these days. Yeah, you have um, to be known on multiple platforms and you're like, oh, it, you can't be just one kind of famous. You have to be X, Y, and yeah. Z famous before you're like actually known and just because people are like, oh, I need to do more to up the other people. And everyone's just on top, like try to outdo everybody else. Yeah. But on the other hand, like the tools make everything way more accessible. So like when I started my first company, you know, if we want to print a book, we had to print at least a thousand copies uh, with kind of a traditional offset printing thing. So just to be a publisher, like you have to have enough money to, you know, pay for all the content and then to print it. And then you have to make deals with distributors, you know, and that would get you into stores and then people could buy it uh, with, you know, a certain amount of convention sales where you could sell direct and things like that. But now, like, you can go on to DriveThruRPG and you don't need to print a thousand. You don't need to print any if you don't want to. You could just sell PDFs or there's a POD option where they're just made to order. Or, you know, I've seen people be like, oh, you know, I, I sold out of my print run at Gen Con and they mean they sold like 25 books, you know. So, it's like, to me, a print one was like at least a thousand. A thousand. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's just much more accessible because you don't need really to have much money to start with. So that's good. And then podcasts um, and blogs uh, also, you know, not things that you need a ton of money up front for. So it's, it's more accessible, which also means that there's just like so much stuff out there that, you know, it's difficult to keep up anymore. But <laughs> that's a different problem. Yeah, that's for sure. Everyone, like everyone's got their own podcast. I mean, that's we what we're doing. <laughs> just anyone with a mic and an opinion is going to start talking online for everyone to hear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're looking to write for us specifically, what what we look for are like short adventures that we're going to publish as PDF support. So, boy, I'm trying to remember the email address. Well, I'll give it to you. You can put it in the show notes. Uh, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> uh, but basically, you know, pick one of our games and, you know, send in a, a 300 word uh, summary of what you propose as an adventure. And then it goes from there. So. All right. Before I go into the games, what were you about to ask? Alex? Oh, I wanted to know, how did you get into tabletop RPGs? Ah, well, you know, it's a funny story. Um, so it was my mom. <laughs> actually <laughs> so i started reading like fantasy and sci-fi at a young age and this was i don't know 1978 79 uh there was one of those like uh newspaper like magazines that came in the sunday boston globe and they had an article about like this wacky game that college students were playing and it was about D D. and she saw that and knowing my interest she's like oh, this seems like the sort of thing you and your friends might like. And so 
it's the polar opposite of all the satanic panic stuff, you know, that I lived through with my friends and things, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, my mom wasn't thinking it was Satanism. She was just like, this sounds like it's up your alley. And she was right. <laughs> so uh, basically in, uh, in 1979, I read Lord of the Rings and I got D and D and start to play. And I mean, that literally changed my life. So that that's why I'm here. Look at me now. (laughs) (laughs) Now I write the damn thing. (laughs) Specifically, look at me now, my sixth grade teacher who told me I was wasting my time with this fantasy stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll show you. (laughs) As a teacher, I want my students to come back and be like, I proved you wrong. (laughs) I want that. You want that smoke? Uh, yeah, I want them to yell at me and be like, ah, you told me I wasn't going to do anything, and here I am doing it. I knew you had it in you all along. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about, okay, so you said pick one of your games, and for anyone that's you're looking for writers specifically, tell me about some of your games. Uh, specifically, I want to hear about uh, Masterminds and Mutants, or Mutants and Masterminds, oh. sorry. Yes, Mutants and Masterminds. Uh, yeah, Mutant Masterminds is our longest running game at this point, actually. Um, the first edition came out in 2002, and it's in its third edition now. And it's our 20th anniversary of Mutant Masterminds. Happy so, but, hey, thanks. Um, uh, wouldn't necessarily have expected that back then. That game got started, uh, so in, in 2000, the third edition of D&D came out. <laughs> and for the first time, uh, D&D was released under what's called the Open Game License, and it allowed other companies to officially, or I should say legally, put out compatible material. Like, people have been doing this since the beginning of D&D, but a lot of it was of dubious legality or handshake deals or this kind of stuff. So this was like a clear legal path to be like, here's D&D stuff. So um, I was working at Wizards at the time, Third edition was in development, so I was involved with the playtesting and and whatnot for third edition. And um, it was in the middle of that process that the idea of the open game license was floated internally. And one of the things that was said was like, well, you know, like Wizards is such a big company and it's hard for Wizards to like turn on a dime you know, because there's so much ahead planning involved in blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, you know, if I start a new company, I can be very fast. And so that's when I decided to start Green Renine. And so the day that the third edition player's handbook came out at Gen Con 2000, I, an adventure I had written called Death in Freeport was released same day at the convention. So we were one of the very first D20 things to come out. And then a lot of the older Game of Three people had been extremely dubious about the whole uh, D20 license and, and open game license thing. And they were like convinced it was a sinister move on the part of Wizards that they didn't want to be involved. So um, at the beginning, the only one of the existing companies that really went into it was Atlas Games, who also had an adventure out that same day. But then people, like once they saw like, oh, there's money to be made here, like then... Everybody jumped into that market, new companies formed, and all this and that. So that's the background for Mutants and Masterminds, because Steve Kenson was talking to me about how he had designed a superhero city for another game company, and that company was basically going out. 
And so he didn't have a home for his superhero city. So I said, well, hey, if you design me a D20 superheroes game, I'll publish your city. And he was like, great, (laughs) I will do that. So it began development uh, that way, where it was going to be like a D20 branded product. But the more Steve got into the design, the more there was a clash between doing things that were right for the superhero genre and doing things according to the D&D third edition rules. And basically, at every point, I advised we should make it better for the genre. And so by the time the game was ready to come out, it was essentially had become a different game because there weren't classes anymore. They were levels, but you actually built your characters with points for all your superheroes and all this kind of stuff. So uh, we released it without the D20 trademark on it, which at the time was considered to be like a risky move because, you know, you needed that trademark on it so people could know. Um, And it turned out not to matter. And uh, it was like an instant success for us. And so, yeah, if you play D&D, you'll see like similar ability scores. There are things called saves, but, you know, it's like the whole... Uh, mechanics of it are are really just different. There's not hit points. You only need like one 20-sided dice to play. You know, there's a whole system for building out powers so you can, you know, try to figure out almost any superpower and all that. And so, yeah, so that went through two editions. Then uh, we actually made a deal with DC Comics to do a, a DC version of the game called DC Adventures. And so that was the debut of third edition M&M in, I believe that was 2010. And we're still publishing third edition stuff now. So that edition has been going for over 10 years. And there's just lots, there's lots of stuff that you can get for some masterminds. Awesome. That sounds, I mean, were you in control of each new, like not in control, but like a part of each new edition? Because how does one decide what, needs to change in each decision? Is it mainly from the consumer standpoint or do y'all see it in playtesting kind of like, maybe we can address this in the next edition kind of thing? Um, so one of the things about being a publisher is like, you can't actually have your finger in everything because there's a lot going on. <laughs> so with Mutants and Masterminds specifically, like uh, I have always let Steve Kenson as the original designer and then uh, whoever the developer is, uh, which was originally Steve, but then shifted over to be uh, John Lighthouser, and now it's Crystal Frazier. They have a lot of latitude in in how they want to advance the game because they're they're more in touch, like with the day to day, you know, talking to fans and and this kind of stuff. Gotcha, yeah, you know, I enjoy music masterminds, but I don't. I'm not in the weeds with it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like. If you come up to me at a convention and have a like extremely corner case rules issue, like <laughs> I'll be like Steve's over there. <laughs> gotcha. We also have something called the Basic Heroes Handbook, which was uh, designed to kind of ease you more into mutants and masterminds. Because um, the thing about it is, it's a very powerful system because it's trying to let you make almost anything. But that does mean there's some complexity in character creation if you want to do it from scratch. And we've worked around that in several ways in the core book. But the basic Heroes Handbook was designed to be like, let us guide you into Mutants and Masterminds. So like it opens with a comic, you know, there's 
a limited selection of pre-built powers and pre-built characters and things like that to teach you the game. And you can just play that, you know, if you want to, but, uh, or you can move on to the main rulebook after that. All right. Question from our discord. Uh, who's the coolest person you've gotten to work with? Essentially asking, hey, who's your favorite and why is it not this other person? (laughs) You know what? It's John Blanche from Games Workshop. I don't know if you know who John is, but he is like the artist who helped define the look of the Warhammer universe. First as like a mad converter of miniatures, but then as an artist. And so there was a point when we were working with Games Workshop where they're like, oh, you know, we're going to have you have a meeting with John while you're here. And I was like, okay, be cool, man. (laughs) And he, uh, he brought to this meeting, I don't, I essentially refer to it as like an illuminated manuscript because it was like a book of like art and doodles and writing, just sort of like ruminating and developing this like particular Warhammer thing that they were doing. Mm -hmm. So you know, there was like stuff that was like hand pasted in there, you know, his wild notes, his crazy art in all the corners. Like it really felt like, you know, just paging through, you know, like a tome and artifacts. Like the like, inside of his head. One of a kind, you know? <laughs> yeah. So that was incredibly cool um, to see that stuff up, up close. All right. What is the coolest project you've worked on either while running Green Running or before? Uh, hmm, good question. Thank you, Joseph, <laughs> for all the good questions. I guess in the sort of uh, like licensed arena, it would be my edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Because uh, basically, the original game came out in 1987, and that's when I started college. And they are that same year, like, I start to play. Uh, what's called the Enemy Within campaign, which is the first like classic Warhammer, like big long campaign thing. And throughout college, that became like my my group's game of choice over D and D. Well, we, you know, we played other things as well, but like, man, I love that game. So, um, so I had an opportunity to write for it in like '95, and that was very exciting. But then, you know, when I was able to make the deal with Games Workshop for us to do the design work for them and then they would publish it through uh, a division they called black industries that I was like over the moon. It was like, here was a, like a super important game to me, something I was a huge fan of and I was getting to lead the new edition. So that was pretty awesome. What did you play? What was your first character um, in Warhammer? <laughs> well, so there were only like a couple of us who were playing over Christmas break, 1987. So I made, two characters that I played for a while. One was an elven scout and the other one was a dwarf, I want to say mercenary. But then later I my long running character turned was a human squire named Otto, uh, who eventually went on to become like a witch hunter. And I played him through most of the adventures in that campaign for several years. Because it, it was like coming out as we were playing it. So there'd be a point where like we'd have to stop because the next book wasn't out yet. That's gonna be exciting. So, yeah, it was cool. It's like the release of like oh, it's a new episode this Saturday. I gotta be there. It's like oh, it's coming mm-hmm. out, but like what weeks, months? <laughs> yeah, 
it did lead to a little bit of nonsense where like we were waiting for the next book and uh this one gm was like well i'm going to continue running games but all the experience points that you gain are like like prohibitionary <laughs> you know where it's like you might get them but it kind of depends on what the next adventure looks like because we wouldn't want you to be too powerful and so you know, we spent months like earning XP <laughs> that maybe we're going to And because of the nature of that dude, like, of course we didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> we're like, oh man, <laughs> come on. It could have been just like an alternative timeline. <laughs> well, we did get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was also pretty great getting to write my first D&D book, which was uh, the Guide to Hell for second edition AD&D. That was, that was my first published thing when I worked at Wizards. That was a good time. Planar stuff, evil. I, I actually picked something up from second AD&D like long ago at my uncle's mm. bookshop. It was just oh, a Spelljammer, yeah. second mm-hmm. AD&D. Very classic. And the new one just came out too. But that's a whole <laughs> other bag of bagels. I, I thought Spelljammer <laughs> was like the dumbest thing when it was coming out because I was like, D&D in space, yeah. come on, you know. But it's one of those things where it's like, <laughs> over the decades, I was like, actually, swashbuckling in space is kind of cool. And so um, I intend to get the new one. Check it out, although I have not yet. <laughs> What's it called? All I think of it about is like the the animated treasure mm. planet. That's just all I think about when I think of swashbucklers in space. Have you not seen, I guess it's not swashbucklers. Okay, I take it back. I take the judgment back that I just threw at you with the face, although, dear listener, you, Adrian. Have I not seen what? Because when I thought swashbuckler, I immediately went to, like, Firefly. But then then again, like, that's not necessary. It's it's cowboy. So, like. Yeah. Yeah, That's the the old west in space. (laughs) I appreciate you. I did watch Firefly and Serenity. I mean, there was only just one season, so it was it's an easy, you know, get. Easy, though? Is it easy? <laughs> it's easy compared to, like, some of the other shows that I've, like, like, I can never get into Supernatural due to its longevity, and everyone's just, like, it, it's, like, seven or eight. I don't know how many uh, seasons it is anymore, but, like. Uh, it's a lot. I just got through season one. Uh, it's, that's my fourth try. <laughs> it took me four times to watch season one and i was like i literally do not give a shit about anybody but uh <laughs> i hear it's good. a good time so let me finish i i watched several seasons because my stepdaughter got into it but then at at the point that we stopped watching it it was like five years later i saw the news that was like well it's the final season and i thought this is still going <laughs> like, <laughs> good god <laughs> What's called his other one was what inspired you to start your own game company. And I think you kind of touched on that during the very first kind of, or you just said yeah. it, it was faster or you made things go faster because it was just you and not having to jump through hoops. <laughs> well, so, uh, well, I still am involved in the punk scene and you know, that I was very much, uh, involved in the New York city punk scene at that time. And a big part of punk rock is the whole do-it-yourself ethic. And so, you know, I was uh, fine freelancing for other people, getting experience and whatever, but I wanted to try my own thing. I just should have waited probably another year or two. But, um, you know, can't blame a punk for trying. (laughs) All right. What is an underground punk band that you don't think gets enough appreciation? 
<laughs> oh, um, well, there was an L.A. band in the 70s called The Screamers, and they sort of like messed up their potential legacy because they were really important on the scene, but they sort of drifted away from making a record ever. Um, their singer had this like this really forward thinking dude called mm -hmm. Tomata Duplenty, and he was trying to have them like make a movie and present music in a video format but they didn't just record anything so you know you would read about them in fanzines and stuff but like i only ever finally heard their music first on like a live video from this company called target that used to record some bands in that era and then later there was like a bootleg of these demos that they had done which they eventually released officially and so i could finally like hear this band but uh their drummer kk he went on to a career in hollywood and ended up like winning an academy award for i forget what one of the disney movies i think uh, on the sound side so that's kind of wild but anyway cool band one <laughs> thing out of everything right <laughs> yeah going and working for the man <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> I'm spinning. It's just pretty funny. Can you can you tell us about this the 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 New York City punk scene? Because as a baby punk myself, mm -hmm. right, one that had to be in marching band, so of course, like I I never got to wear anything because I was too busy marching. Can can you please describe that time of your life? I'm so excited sure. right now. <laughs> so i had gotten into punk in the boston scene where i grew up in the boston area and i started going to shows in 1985 and you know got into a bunch of bands and things and i was so into it that when i was looking at colleges i didn't look at like what's the best school for me i said what cities have the best scene that i want to go be involved in and so you know i decided it was between washington dc and new york city and Washington, like the DC scene is like legendary. There are probably more bands, you know, that I love from there, but it was actually a pretty small scene altogether. Um, and DC, like it just didn't have what New York had, which was like everything. <laughs> like, do you want something? It's probably happening and happening in one of the boroughs right now no matter what time it is. So I ended up picking New York and, you know, like my first week there, you know, I went to CBGB, which I had only heard about and, you know, started going to shows there and stuff. And the New York scene was big enough um, that it was like splintered into different factions. Right. And so, you know, there was like the tough guy, like New York hardcore guys, you know, like agnostic fronts and, and sick of it all. And, and those kind of people, um, and I just really wasn't into the machismo of that whole thing. And so I ended up gravitating towards more like like the peace punk political side of things, you know, bands like the False Prophets and, and Apple. Eventually, there was an art space that started to have punk shows, and it was called ABC No Rio on Rivington Street. And that started having shows in like 89, uh, although I didn't start going until 90. But anyway, that turned into kind of the focus of my scene um, because it was both an art space and a punk club. And uh, when I got involved, the original artists who had started it as actually a protest to rent 
prices in the city. They were kind of tired of it and were moving out. So then we, the punks, took over and we ran it as a collective. And so we did shows and art shows, food not bombs, cooked out of the kitchen. Uh, it was just a real center of, of community. And for a couple of years, I was technically the president because we were a 501c3 nonprofit. But as the president, I had no particular power because we were a collective. But, you know, <laughs> it was funny. The punks um, have a so nonprofit. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, at a certain point, the city decided that they had enough of us and that they wanted to evict us. And so we paid a very low rent. And, and that came out of the way that the whole thing was founded, which I won't get into. But anyway, they just stopped accepting our rent checks. And then, you know, they're being like, well, you haven't paid your rent. We're like, we're sending you checks and you're not cashing them. So then it became this whole like showdown where we didn't have people squatting in the building, but we started to. So the cops couldn't come in at midnight, you know, and, and take the whole thing over. This, By the way, this is why to this day, I fucking hate Rudy Giuliani because he was the mayor at the time. He's a piece of shit. Oh, and he yeah. continues to be a piece of shit. So I <laughs> think you're... Y- yes. Huge. Yeah. No, you're valid. Huge. Valid then. Yeah. Valid now. We hear you. Yeah. <laughs> so then, like, the weirdest thing that happened is they wanted to give the space to this other group. And we were like, yeah, but we're here you know, and your deal with them would let them take over the building and have like low income housing for five years. And then they could jack it up to whatever they wanted. So, you know, you should just leave it with us. (laughs) And so one of the strangest things I ever did was go to city hall in New York with a bunch of punks to negotiate with the mayor's office (laughs) about our punk club. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, I left the city to start my first company and it was like not even six months after I left that the city actually like changed its stance and agreed to sell the building to us for a very low price if we could come up with plans to renovate it and stuff like that. And so that's been an ongoing process for like 20 years and it's currently a hole in the grounds, but they're rebuilding it. It's going to be super great when it's done. (laughs) Hopefully soon. (laughs) Anyway, that's what my New York punk scene was like. But there was like so many different subgenres of stuff happening in New York. You know, there was the goths and the the crossover metal dudes and, you know, just whatever. (laughs) New wave, all, all kinds of stuff. And there were just shows all the time. You know, like I would go to two or three shows a week, like most weeks. Uh, it's been a big change coming to Seattle, I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I flourished in the ska culture that is Dallas, Texas as a young child. So oh, okay. uh, feel yeah. feel the shows every weekend, um, but to a different degree because I was a, a wee babe and then moved to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Oh, we had ska too. <laughs> um, it's okay. I understand. Like pants I feel all. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was a, it was a cool formative time and that's where a lot of my, uh, my DIY ethics come from. How does like your, this, this kind of like punk feel, how do you put that into your work or like your lifestyle, I guess? Well, so in my early years, I would put like punk rock references into my writing that I knew that nobody in gaming was likely to get, you know, 
like to this day, there are some of them that nobody has ever been like, oh, by the way, you know, like I noticed your pair Ubu reference in this D&D book. <laughs> <laughs> like that hasn't happened. But, um, but you know, it was one of those things that I found amusing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's like a misfit song called We Are 138. And I was writing a Feng Shui adventure in like 1995. And if you know the game, like you time travel to different eras and one of them is in the future. And so, you know, the, the player characters are, are coming in to this possible future. And, um, you know, they landed this town that's called Pride 138. And it was the result of a lame government attempt to make people feel more pride in their hometowns. So this was the 138th town that was called Pride. And as they're exploring, the kids are going to school and they're marching down the street, you know, chanting, we are 138. <laughs> Nobody's ever gotten it, but I thought it was funny. That's beautiful. That's, you know, just that's for me, myself into this portion. If someone gets it, that's great, but still, that's like me in that writing. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't do that as much. Although, uh, what I did do, God, when was it? 2020, I think. We were doing a Mutants and Masterminds book that has come out since called the Time Traveler's Codex. And it's all about doing time travel shenanigans in your Mutants and Masterminds campaign. And so Crystal, the developer, was like, oh, you know, I think we should do like New York City in the 80s. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I should write that because I literally lived there. You know, I, <laughs> I showed up at the height of the crack epidemic. So, you know, I, I feel qualified. <laughs> so... uh <laughs> So there's a whole section I decided instead of doing the whole city that I would specifically cover the Lower East Side. That's where a lot of my punk activity was focused. That's where ABC No Rio is and CBGB and a bunch of other clubs and things. So that is definitely like all informed by my punk experiences. The The center of it is in a real world event called the Tompkins Square Riot, which was not a riot of people, but a riot of police you know, who just went buck wild on a rampage after uh, this protest in Thomas Square Park and just, you know, covered their badges and started beating people and putting them in the hospital. So um, I have friends who had their faces smashed and their glasses ground underfoot and sent to the hospital and all this kind of stuff. So that's like some central background to that section that I wrote. But, you know, it's also a Mutants and Masterminds thing. So I had to figure out how to how to get some... Uh, some supers into that. So there's a, I've got like a, th a three woman punk band who are also like by night, like vigilante supers, like fighting the cops and stuff. So, <laughs> so check that out. I think you'd probably appreciate it. I, Adrian, I think we have a new game to go play. I think. Oh yeah, <laughs> I found it. definitely. Thanks for letting me blab about this stuff. <laughs> no, listen, no, we listen. Want to. We want to yeah. hear this stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. This is because we can talk is... about the TTRPG all we want, <laughs> but we also want to know the person them, themselves, you know, because they're what makes the the game they the the work they put into very interesting. So, like, you know, what kind of person they are. Mm -hmm. We just kind of look at the diversity of what type of people are here creating this work. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Alex. <laughs> Why are you sorry? I was gonna go on my yeah. <laughs> normal A cab rage. We can do that too. We, I mean, we're down with that shit. <laughs> it's funny because, like, in my my earliest years in the game industry, like, I quickly sussed out that 
I should just avoid talking about politics and music because, you know, when I was going to Gen Con in like 89 and 90 and stuff, like it was still very much like Midwestern dominated, like conservative, you know, um, and there were, I mean, literally, you know, I could count on one hand, like the number of people that I knew who liked any kind of punk rock. But uh, that's something that's really changed over the years. So, you know, now um, it's uh, it's much different. (laughs) There's plenty of people into, you know, punk or alternate lifestyles or whatever, not not just, uh, you know, family values, uh, conservatism or whatever. (laughs) Oh yeah, no. I, Sorry, Family a lot now. of different people were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was no, quote marks for you. For, for you to say that, right, yeah. is, is wild. Because then you do talk about the the idea of D anD D or any sort of tabletop RPGs having that level of satanic panic. But if like the height yeah. of Dungeons and Dragons came out in Gen Con, like Midwestern people tend to have the stereotype of you know the quote-unquote family values Mm -hmm. weren't they the people making it panic like were (laughs) that not how that one worked you just yeah well so this is the funny part right like like the the makers the creators of dnd guys and arson they were both like christians you know like uh like devout christians so the fact that they were like framed as, as satanists is just you know, really funny. Uh, <laughs> I mean, not so much in the eighties when, uh, when, when to be gamer was, uh, <laughs> was not easy, but yeah, it's, um, you know, like I, I lived through those times as a teenager and, you know, I had friends who had to keep their D and D books at my house. Cause if their parents found them, they would burn them or at least throw them away. And, you know, they had to lie and, and get around their, their parents so they wouldn't know that they were playing the devil's game and you know like just all this absolute nonsense it's that's why it's like extra deeply weird for me to watch D become like a hip thing that hollywood people do you know go on <laughs> Stephen colbert and talk about their D campaigns like yeah that was not the case in the early <laughs> 80s i can tell you <laughs> yeah. but the funnier part of all is that that whole move all it did was was actually make D&D into what it's become because D&D was selling slowly and steadily in the later part of the 70s. But it was when that whole thing with Dallas Egbert and the steam tunnels, you know, and, and that one, you know, investigator who just pulled a lot of shit out of his ass about D&D and, and you know, got the evangelicals all wound up about it. All that did was help sell D&D like the years after that happens, that's when the sales went through the roof for TSR. So it was like, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for making this way more popular than it was. That only goes into my whole idea that if you want to come at any of us on any of the social medias, fight yeah. me. I will I will fight you in public on TikTok or on Twitter <laughs> uh, because no, all traffic is good traffic. Apparently. Yeah. I, I had people trying at like as a as an insult or like a warning about me and my company. They were like, 
Chris Premis is a full member of Antifa. And I was like, why are you reciting my credits? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah, I am. <laughs> and I'm fucking proud of it. Hell yeah. As you lace up your Doc Martens. <laughs> God, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Like, I've never stopped going to protests, you know? And, uh, you know, it's just been really infuriating to watch fascism become the thing that everyone agreed was bad. And that's why, you know, we fought Hitler and uh, supposedly ended the fascist threat for all time, you know, and then to have these uh, so-called patriots running around, you know, like parodying like Nazi doctrine, like get out of here. That's not patriotism. You know, America fought the Nazis. <laughs> so. <laughs> Take your swastika flags and get fucked, you know? For real. I mean, if you have a yeah. population uh, who don't understand how education works and then we don't have conversations about what actually happened or how it all started, you know, you can look at the rhetoric of how Hitler and his regime came into power and then absolutely take that cell by cell and drop it, you know, on everything Uneducated. that... Donald Trump did and it it's it's not like Hitler was super eloquent but there were enough people in the background to help push that forward and you just just why do I don't I don't understand and the push I don't understand I also yeah. don't understand <laughs> I mean it was decades and decades and decades of TV shows books movies you know all with a message of Nazis were bad. <laughs> Fascism is bad. And America did a good thing, you know, by getting involved and helping end the fascist menace. And it just apparently just didn't stick with, you know, a quarter of the country or something. So, uh, yeah, it's it's infuriating. Yep. Got to fight fascism in our backyard now. Mm hmm. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Too many. I got too many people in this small town that I live in are kind of QAnon kind of individuals or just yeah spray painting their own house with messages just like all over. Uh, it's ridiculous. Well, you know how like one of the favorite well, like conservative parts of the culture war is is trying to compare like the virtuous small town America mm -hmm. with the sinful big city, you know, and all of it. <laughs> it's sin and sex and, you know, Satan and whatever. And like, well, you know, we don't have people like that in our towns. It was like, you did actually. And they all fucking left because they didn't want to live with hateful, judgmental assholes like you. So they moved yeah. to the cities to find people like them. So <laughs> just remember some of the people that you hate in the cities have all come from real America, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. I don't know how this turned into a political rant. So apologies if that's hey, not the direction you want to go. That's the degrees no, no, no. part. Like, the see. and degrees part, that's where we ended up. <laughs> we talked about some dungeons and now we're on the degrees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you meant like school degrees or... All oh degrees. no, it just seven it, degrees from it's just all <laughs> <laughs> Um yeah, no, the the degrees part is essentially like 
the real life stuff around the actual game that we kind of talk about. At first it was just me trying to get into college and now it's <laughs> me also still trying, still to, get trying to get into college. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but just talking about everyone's experience. I mean, it's the yeah. shared knowledge of what everyone's been through and how they've like, this is the reason why I do D and D or TTRPGs in general, or this is why, you know, my art is so, you know, inspirational to me. Like, the human aspect of learning about the person that we play games with because that helps us kind of see that D&D isn't just for the you know the basement dweller whatever it was (laughs) (laughs) or the sinful satanist Um, it's for a lot of people but that doesn't mean it's for everyone because some people just using it for the wrong reasons yeah well (laughs) just doing power trip (laughs) fantasies (laughs) Yes. Um, had a, had my fair share of DMs like that. Oh yeah, me too. Definitely. Well, I will say, like another thing, that's really, another thing that's really changed since I was a teenager is like there is like an enormous pressure on people of my generation to go to college because if you didn't go to college, you were a loser and you couldn't get a good job and you know da da da. And mm-hmm. um, you know the way that. Uh, the whole student loan system has screwed, you know, like the generations uh, since Reagan, basically. (laughs) Like, it's not necessarily a good idea. Like, you know, we completely ignored the trade skills for a long time. So it was like, go get a liberal arts degree. Well, like, if you got trained to be a plumber, like, you're going to make more money, (laughs) you know, than somebody with a liberal arts degree, like, going to teach or something like that. But, you know, there was this sort of snootiness about it. And uh, I just think that we have to be beyond that, you know, like there's plenty of ways to make a living. Not all of them have to, you know, involve going to college. And a lot of times college isn't worth putting yourself into debt, you know, that you might carry for decades. Like I didn't pay off my graduate school loans till I was 47. You know, I didn't expect when I signed up for that, it would take me till I was almost 50, you know? So 100% behind student loan forgiveness, even though I completely paid off my loans <laughs> so because it was shitty when I did it. I'd like it to not be shitty for other people. You heard it here, folks. Not everyone yep. hates you <laughs> for having debt being forgiven. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that's going into it, but I'm like, I'm still like, oh, you still got to get a master's degree if you want to do anything with psychology. I'm like, just yeah. let, me, let me do something, please. Yeah. <laughs> well, ironically, I never took my master's degree because I started writing RPG stuff and getting paid for it. And that might be I, me like, in a couple of years. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. It was really hard to motivate myself when it was like, well, I could write this paper for this class or I could write an article I'm going to get paid for. So uh, I took some incompletes and I just never actually went back and finished them. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm, we're here now. <laughs> yeah, we're here now. Yeah. I graduated with my master's and then did not go into education until two years ago, until 2021. Mm. So I graduated and uh, had all that student loan debt and then was like, I'm, I'm a perfectly adequate teacher. The state of Texas says I can. And then I was like, no, thank you. Until, (laughs) until I had to be, I felt like, you know, I don't know. 
I felt like I had to be boots on the ground and help the next generation unlearn all of the trauma that I think, or not even experience any of the trauma that I think I experienced as a, a young person in just, you know, all aspects of life of my parents needing to deal with their trauma and then how hard it was to be in school and then be uh, neurodivergent mm. or just not having somebody on your campus who just loved you because of every weird aspect of you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you never even have to use your master's degree or you can use it 10 years down the road after you get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, all that stuff is a consequence of the pernicious idea that mental health is weakness, <laughs> you know, yeah. that, that, you know, it's some problem with you and that, that the schools, you know, like, Texas schools don't need to make any special considerations for neurodivergent people because they got the Bible or whatever. <laughs> so, I had somebody yeah. come in with their with their kid. They're just like, well, I just don't think they're praying enough. I think that's why he's hearing voices. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> just totally oh, putting all the blame. Yeah. We are at the hour mark. Is there any more questions we have for Chris Premus? Uh no, but I, I'm pretty sure we could talk for hours, Chris. I'm pretty sure I could keep going and asking you questions about your existence on this planet and then just be absolutely amazed, <laughs> you know, in your short career here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, let me tell you that that like mentally it's still a struggle. You know, like it, it can seem like people who've had a lot of experiences like, oh, well, they got it all figured out and they're skating along. And that is not the case. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> not to add to the existential dread at one day that I'll have everything yeah. figured out. Thank you. <laughs> I guess that wasn't very helpful. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, not the truth. Not the truth. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, listen, life's a learning experience until you're not learning, which is when you're dead. Yeah. So don't worry about it. <laughs> well, you know, there was this whole um, campaign that Dan Savage did called "It Gets Better," you know, which was basically encouraging like all the weirdos of the world, you know, like the misfits, the punks, the queers, you know, whoever, like who grew up miserably in grade school and high school and stuff. You know, the idea that it gets better, like you can leave the house, you can go to places and meet other people like you and, you know, like you can succeed without, you know, getting a, a job in the widget factory or whatever. And uh, I used to be like, yeah, that's that's true, because, you know, like I went through that, like it did get better when I moved to New York City and um and so that's what I would say to my stepdaughter. But from her point of view right now, like, I must have been full of shit because, <laughs> you know, what she's seen is, you know, she can't afford to get an apartment in Seattle. And, uh, you know, we're three years into a worldwide pandemic that people have just given up on and, uh, you know, are like Roe versus, Roe versus Wade was overturned and her bodily autonomy is now in question and all this stuff that sure doesn't make it seem to her like it's going to get better. And I can't, 
actually argue with her about that right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We're seeing a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> what is your one big piece of advice for anybody? Like the culmination of what you have learned here in this existence. What would you say? Um, well, um, you know, I would say that it is possible to go your own way and not do what's expected of you and, you know, spend as little time working for asshole bosses as you can. But, you know, it's going to be hard, is, is what I would say. <laughs> so if, if you can do it, I encourage you to do it because it's a more, like, creative way to live your life, you know. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's possible. Getting harder, but, you know, you can do it. Awesome. All right. Where can they find you, Chris? On Twitter, I am at Pramus, P-R-A-M-A-S. You can also find me on Facebook under my name. I have a blog I use occasionally called ChrisPramus.com. Did actually put a whole article up there last month uh, about the new Warhammer Horse Heresy miniatures game that came out then. My thoughts, a little bit of history Mm -hmm. about the whole property and how it came to be where it is and, and all that. And, uh, you know, conventions and things. I'm always at Gen Con. I haven't, I've been to every Gen Con since 1989. So <laughs> I'll be there if I'm alive. Uh, Hell yeah. <laughs> I'll be there if I'm alive too. <laughs> yeah. Not to uh, date this, but it's, that's a whole 33 years, uh, Mr. Primus. I uh, was born in 89, so I know exactly how long you've been oh. going to Gen Con. <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> I, I can feel it's okay i'm sorry to make you feel old i didn't mean to <laughs> it's okay i've made you feel bad enough so. yeah fair fair, fair. Uh, yes nobody We're can beat me now. up more than my own brain <laughs> yeah right <laughs> have you met my greatest enemy <laughs> ah we meet again yeah Thank you, dear listener, for joining us for another mostly D&D adventure. Uh, you can continue to join our antics over on all of our social medias. Um, you can also find us on any place that pods are cast. So if you want to share this lovely journey that Adrian and I are taking you on, please do so. That's how we grow. You can also now rate podcasts on Spotify. So go hit that five star You don't have to do anything else. You could just do the five star and that would be immensely helpful to get us growing and get to talk to more cool people. If you should do duh, anytime you get five star, like you should never do anything less than five stars. Like legitimately, unless it's like a dumb racist Nazi podcast in which you should definitely rate it. No stars. If it's a small, small podcast like us, like, Five stars, bitch. You got this. If that's not enough and you said, Alex, how else do I help? You, dear listener, can also help us out through our Patreon. Um, We are definitely growing and working the second year of being a podcast. And so if you get in early, then you'll get to see the inside scoop of all of our new things that are happening on Patreon. We have one shots pencils stickers you know all the all the things we are also donating money at the end of every month 
Today is the last day of August, so we will be releasing those numbers soon. You can join... Oh, I didn't say... I don't think I said it last time, did I? Thank you to our patrons. That's Those include Skylar, Megan, Alex, Wani, Lucy, Mr. Lawrence, Paige, and the ever fantastic and beautiful Noah. All right. Thank you so much for listening. My name's Adrian. And I'm Alex. And I'm Chris. Go have some fun.